I'm Kristen Marchand, and welcome to another historic anniversary show by the Apiango Readers Theatre. 107 years ago, this very night, at just about this time, an old rickety 77-foot steamer pulled away from the wharf here in Barry's Bay. It was headed down Lake Kamenizkeg to Cumbermere on its last trip of the season. Aboard were its crew, Captain Aaron Parcher at the wheel, Tom Delaney, a deckhand who was both engineer and fireman, and Captain Jack Hudson, part owner, who collected the $1.50 fare and often worked as fireman so Delaney could tend to the engine full-time. Along with his brother Henry, or Hal Hudson, the other part owner of the Mayflower, Jack Hudson was a seasoned river freight operator of steamboats who had long served the local farming, mining, and timber industries in the area by providing steamboat services as far back as 1899. Also on board were nine living passengers and one dead. The dead one was John Brown, a local man who had died in Saskatchewan, but whose body was shipped back to the area for burial. The living passengers included Robert Parshall, a 35-year-old man from Yorkton, Saskatchewan, who was escorting the coffin containing his brother-in-law, John Brown. Mrs. McWhirter, an 80-year-old grandmother from Fort Stewart, Pat O'Brien, the owner of O'Brien House, a hotel in Cumbermere, that doubled as the new Cumbermere Telephone Exchange, William Bame, a tailor from Cumbermere, and William Murphy from Rockingham. Finally, there were four commercial traveling salesmen, or travelers, as they were called back in the day, all from Ottawa, James Harper, John Imlach, Gordon Peverly, and George Bothwell, all young men in their late 20s. Most of the passengers assembled that Tuesday at the Balmoral Hotel for what they believed was a 2.30 p.m. departure from the Barry's Bay Wharf. But Captain Hudson was forced to delay. The train carrying Brown's coffin had not yet arrived in Barry's Bay. So wait, they did, for nearly four hours until about 6.30 p.m., when finally the group headed down to the wharf. With coffin safely stowed aboard about 7 o'clock that evening, the old flat-bottomed Mayflower drew up its gangplank, hauled in its mooring ropes, and started chugging south past Mask Island, happily heading for its home port of Cumbermere. What happened over the next 24 hours became the thing of legend, if not mythology. Some said the old Mayflower was damaged goods to begin with. Some said it had hit a reef or a rock on the way up from Cumbermere earlier in the day, and so was already taking on too much water, more than its pumps could handle. Others say it hit a rock that stormy night going through the narrows around 9 p.m. And still others say the sinking was just about the only rational outcome for what everybody in town expected from a tippling Jack Hudson who didn't have enough sense to stay out of the wicked November storm that most people saw coming. Whatever the true reasons for the sinking of the Mayflower, we here at the Apiango Readers Theatre thought it might be of interest to our local and podcast audiences to hear how the story got told at that time. But before we turn back the pages of history and return to that night, 107 years ago this very evening, we'd like to let you know about somebody who remembers that night very well. Tom Murray was born in 1880 here in the township of Madawaska Valley, and on that very evening, 
He himself was a nervous wreck. You see, his young wife, Hannah, was nearing the end of her confinement and was about to give birth to their very first child. But the midwife and the other women who had invaded Tom's house had put the run on the worried young husband. So, Tom was out walking that very night, trying not to interfere with what was going on back home and try as he might to get his mind off his own crisis at hand, the birth of what would turn out to be his first son, John Joseph Oliver Murray. But more on that later. Steamers, such as the Mayflower, were not a new thing back then in these parts. As many as six steamboats were known to have plied local waters. The first one, the pioneer working the waters of Bark Lake as early as 1887, but sank there in November 1904. In fact, for as long as there had been steamboats, the local lumber industry had been using steamboat tugs, or as they were locally called, alligators, to move log booms, stray timbers, or even remove deadheads along the Madawaska River. But it was not until 1894 when J.R. Booth built his private OA&PS railway right through the middle of Barry's Bay that there was a new opportunity for a different kind of steamboat. August 31st, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. An enterprising Cumbermere merchant has purchased a two-deck steamer, 40 feet long, which will be conveyed over the OA and PS Railway to Barry's Bay in September. September 22nd, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The OA and PS Railway has started a steamboat service between the end of their line at Barry's Bay to Cumbermere, a distance of 12 miles. Captain Johnson will be in charge of the boat. June 6th, 1895, the Ottawa Journal. At Cumbermere, the steamer E.L. Perkins, the property of Mr. Daniel Johnson, took fire on Monday evening while lying at the wharf and was burned to the water's edge. The engineer had just left for supper, there being no one left on board when the fire took place in some unknown manner. The steamer plied between Barry's Bay and Cumbermere and was the only means of communication by water on the Madawaska in that section of the country. Mr. Johnson had no insurance. He is in Ottawa at present to purchase a boat to take the place of the one destroyed, if he can find one suitable, being determined to keep up the service so urgently required in the interests of the public. September 18th. 1895, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. They want steamers. The farming community of the township of Bangor and Carlow, the merchants of Cumbermere, Mount Eagle, Fort Stewart, and Maynooth in the county of Hastings, are greatly exercised over the withdrawal of the two steamers that plied between these places and Barry's Bay in connection with the OA and PS Railway at the latter place on account of the low water at the sandbar on the Madawaska River at the foot of Lake Kamenisqueg. The mischief is caused by the opening of the dam at Palmer Rapids. These boats did a large business in freight and passenger traffic on Barry's Bay, Lake Kamenisqueg, and the Madawaska River. The people of these districts are anxiously looking to both the Dominion and Ontario governments for redress. We believe the latter has already moved in the matter as their chief engineer is to go over the route to investigate. 
Action should not be delayed, as much produce is being detained at the bay and the several places mentioned waiting for higher water on the Madawaska. March 7, 1896, The Ottawa Journal. Mr. Daniel Johnson, a former Ottawan, now resident of Combermere, is in Ottawa in the interest of his steamboat enterprise, re-established last year between Barry's Bay and the, on the OA and PS and Havergal in the county of Hastings. The steamer runs on the Madawaska and the North Branch, York, rivers, a distance of 25 miles, and Mr. Johnson is now here to make arrangements for increasing his facilities for meeting the wants of the farmers in that section. He states that there is a steady growth of population along these waters and that the movements of produce outwards and the coming in of supplies has been greatly facilitated by the placing of a steamer where neither railway nor water service has ever previously existed. April 13, 1896, the Windsor Star. Combermere, special. Mr. Henry Hudson, trapper, hunter, and lumberman was injured by falling on a knot which entered his body from beneath and injured his bladder and kidneys. He says, I was confined to my bed for six weeks and was rarely able to work, feeling too weak since the injury over eight years ago. I have taken one box of Dodd's kidney pills and am perfectly cured and as able-bodied as ever before in my life. One box was worth $100 to me, if it's possible to estimate such a benefit in dollars. I don't know how that last item managed to find its way into our story tonight, but it's amazing how often endorsements for Dodd's kidney pills shows up in what purports to be news reports in the late 19th and early 20th century. But it should be noted in passing, Canadian reporters sure seem to find a lot of local yokels from the Madawaska Valley to vouch for the authenticity of Dodd's kidney pills. <laughs> All to say that Tom Murray was probably justified in his rather jaundiced view of journalists in general and medical cures in particular. But it is interesting that Henry Hudson, that spokesman for Dodd's, also happened to be the brother and partner of Jack Hudson. Together, in 1899, the two brothers seized on the growing steamboat opportunity and built their first steamboat, the Hudson, a 73-foot paddle-wheeler that was taken out of service in 1904 and lost in the fire in 1911. But by 1904, the Hudson brothers had replaced their original steamer with a slightly larger paddle-wheeler, the Mayflower. The Hudsons were no shrinking violets. In fact, it was to the rough and ready Hudson family that Cumbermere owes much of its early 20th century success. They built a hotel, a passenger steamboat, and even had plans for a fishing resort to be established in the heart of Cumbermere that would be second to none. That, of course, all came crashing down in 1912. Late that Tuesday evening of November 12, 1912, the old Mayflower sank near what was then called Gull Island, now Parcher Island. But it wouldn't be until the next day, Wednesday, November 13th, that three survivors were found on that island. And it would take another day before the story of what actually happened that Tuesday night began to hit the big Ottawa newspapers. November 14th, 1912, Ottawa Evening Journal. Three Ottawa men, only survivors of the wreck on the Madawaska. 
little hope entertained for missing passengers and crew of the Mayflower. Patrick O'Brien made brave fight for life. Survivors tell story to journal. Saved by casket. Steamer leaking before she left wharf is latest report. Cumbermere, November 14th. At noon today, I interviewed Mr. John Imlach, one of the survivors of the Mayflower wreck. He said, We were sitting in the engine room talking with Mr. Bothwell when suddenly we noticed water coming in. Within minutes, the boat filled up with water to the cabin. We clung to the casket and assisted Mr. O'Brien. We remained in the same spot about half an hour, and we then commenced drifting to the shore. We were in the water about three hours until seven o'clock last night. The experience was a terrible one. Mr. Peaverly's feet and legs were terribly bruised on account of his taking off his boots when he was trying to swim. We finally swam ashore at three o'clock, but we had no matches and so could not light at first a fire, but, but managed to light a fire using a gasoline cigar lighter. The fire was started on the shore and, and we remained on shore for some time. We managed to get the casket with the body in it and, and took it ashore with us. Those who reached shore were Peaverly, Harper, and Mr. O'Brien of Cumbermere, and then myself. Mr. O'Brien was so exhausted a condition that he died half an hour later. We also brought to shore the casket with the body. During the several hours we were in the water, we slapped each other's faces and bodies to keep ourselves sensible. The cold was so intense. Mr. Harper of Ottawa took off his necktie and fastened it to the casket, and by this means, as the casket floated, we got ashore. Their object in tying the necktie was that they were so exhausted, but the casket floated, and in that way rendered some assistance in getting them to the shore. Many times they came near succumbing. Earlier, a cigar had been given to the captain, and, and we did not see Mr. Bothwell of, off, of Ottawa after that incident. We did everything we could to save the old lady who was on board. We never saw Mr. Bothwell of Ottawa after we left the boat, and there's little doubt that he went down with the boat. We had to let the old lady go on account of her terrible struggling and, and the grip she took of us. Mr. Imlach and Mr. Harper are feeling pretty good, but Mr. Paverly is suffering from injury to legs and feet. I talked over the telephone this morning with Mr. Harper but he did not feel strong enough to talk for publication, but was able to give the story. Of course, the Ottawa men have been through a terrible strain, and while in no actual danger are still feeling the effects of the most remarkable experience of their lives. Mr. Harper's brother and Mrs. Harper, Nellie, went this morning to Barry's Bay. Mrs. Harper is in a very agitated state and very anxious Mrs. Harper talked freely and cannot understand why her husband was on the boat. She says he could not swim a stroke. Far from shore, in water of almost unknown depth, nine persons are believed to have perished with the steamer Mayflower, which went down on Lake Kamenskeg on the Madawaska River Tuesday night while making the journey from Barry's Bay to Combermere, both in Renfrew County. Of 12 on board the steamer when she left Barry's Bay, only five are as yet accounted for beyond any possible doubt. Three survived the plunge into the cold waters and the subsequent exposure until rescued, and two bodies have been recovered. No word of Mr. Bothwell. At noon today, no word had reached Ottawa 
which would tend to lift the heavy cloud of anxiety felt by the relatives and friends of George P. Bothwell of Ottawa reported missing this morning. It is definitely known that J.S. Imlach, G.C. Peverly, and M.J. Harper are in O'Brien's Hotel at Combermere, and that all are expected to survive the effects of their terrible experience, although Mr. Harper is very weak and possibly cannot be moved for a few days. Mr. Imlach's father has heard from his son and expects him to arrive back in Ottawa tomorrow afternoon. Reports of the frightful disaster are slowly filtering through the little used news channels from the Madawaska district, and the meagerness of the news may be partly accounted for by the fact that the telephone office at Combermere was kept by Mr. Patrick O'Brien, himself one of the victims of the tragedy. One apparently authentic report, which comes to the journal, is that the Mayflower struck a reef on her last trip from Combermere to Barry's Bay, and that she was leaking when she left the wharf on her fateful trip. Another account says the boat struck the wharf at Barry's Bay when she was leaving, and that a leak afterwards developed. At any rate, it appears that the steamer had covered more than half the distance to Combermere from Barry's Bay when the water began to enter the steamer, and in a remarkably short time showed signs of sinking. Although she entered the narrows between Barry's Bay and the enlargement of the Madawaska River known as Lake Kamenisqueg, still she was some distance from either shore, far enough to tax even the stoutest swimmer. Never to be forgotten. The struggles of the survivors and of the two men whose bodies have been found were prodigious indeed, and it is an experience which which the living will never forget. As soon as the alarm was raised, every available man in the district joined the search parties and they are still at work this morning. George Bothwell, well-known Ottawa man, is feared lost with the Mayflower. Mr. George P. Bothwell, no news of whom has yet been received since the disaster which overtook the Mayflower on the Madawaska River on Tuesday night, is a fine swimmer of splendid physique. When the news of the wreck first reached Ottawa, it stated that everyone on board had been lost. But two hours later, news came through that three Ottawans had survived, and friends of Mr. Bothwell, who knew his powers, expected his name to come in among the list of the saved. The length of time during which no news of him had been received lessens the chance of his safety, but hope has not yet been absolutely abandoned. Mr. Bothwell came from Aberdeen, Scotland, six years ago and has been connected with the Castle Company for five years. He left Ottawa on Monday on one of his regular tours for the company. He is 27 years of age and lives at 103 Nepean Street. He is a member of Number 5 Company of the CE and was a member of the Canadian Contingent to the Coronation. He is an active mason and has a large circle of friends in the city who earnestly hope that the news of his rescue may yet be received. Captain Hudson mourned. Captain Hudson, who was about 50 years of age, was highly respected and had a reputation in the community as a hard-working and progressive citizen. He leaves a widow and one son, Edwin, eight years of age. William Bain.
William Bain, the Cumbermere tailor who perished, was, as his name would indicate, a German. He had been a resident of the village for about 25 years. He leaves a wife and a grown-up family, Patrick O'Brien. Patrick O'Brien, the proprietor of the O'Brien house, was also an old-timer in the district. His family conducted the hotel, and the old man spent much of his time during the summer months on the water with fishing rod in hand. The deaths of Captain Hudson, Patrick O'Brien, and William Bame will leave a big gap in the ranks of what has, in recent years, been a steadily diminishing community, and today will be a day of mourning practically for every home in the little village of Cumbermere. Not first time Mayflower has gone to the bottom. Old-fashioned craft was sunk in collision 15 months ago. Captain Hudson himself, a victim, responsible for her resurrection. Boat went down in Lake, not in Madawaska River. The wreck of the Mayflower did not occur in the Madawaska River, as one not well acquainted with the geography of the Barry's Bay and Cumbermere districts would suppose, but in an arm of Lake Kamenisqueg, known as Barry's Bay. The Madawaska River flows into the lake a bit further west, between the larger bodies of water known as Lake Kamenisqueg and Barry's Bay, there is a narrower channel with rocky shores from half to three-quarters of a mile long. It is a favorite resort for fishermen from Ottawa and other points, the steep, rocky shoreline providing the deep water in which the gamey, smallmouth bass, for which the lake is noted, lie in wait for the angler. It is almost inconceivable how, in such a narrow stretch of water, the Mayflower could have gone down with practically all on board, more particularly as the boat always towed behind it, a large riverman's boat, capable of holding 20 to 30 people at a pinch. The explanation probably is the boat turned over sooner than expected and before the river boat could be drawn alongside the sinking craft sank once before. In this connection, it is interesting to note that this is not the first time the Mayflower has gone down. About 15 months ago, when on the return from Barry's Bay to Cumbermere, she was rammed by a deadhead in the stretch of the Madawaska River between the lower end of Lake Kamenisqueg and the village of Cumbermere. In about three minutes, the craft was at the bottom of the river, the wreck occurred in the middle of a summer afternoon, and the dozen passengers who had been on board watched the Mayflower go down from its river boat, into which they had stepped safely. It is thought that the Mayflower would have to be left at the bottom, but Captain Jack Hudson, who went down with her yesterday, thought otherwise. He got together a gang of men, constructed outfits on either side of the sunken craft, passed chains under her, and with a set of jack screws brought the boat to the top again. Her history. The Mayflower is an old-fashioned craft. It was built in Combermere by Captain Hudson and was a second boat of the same name and design. The original Mayflower was built primarily to carry corundum taken from the mines a few miles from Combermere to Barry's Bay. During the first season, however, the corundum had been carried in a vessel chartered by the mine owners, and the Mayflower, apart from making its daily trip from Cumbermere to Barry's Bay, a distance of 14 miles, with mail, passengers and freight, 
also towed logs on the lake. That the Mayflower should have been in the Narrows at 8 o'clock at night was something unusual, as the trip was almost invariably made between the hours of 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. The fact that the captain was not in the habit of making the trip after night may possibly have been the cause of the accident. No lights in channel. There are no lights or aids to navigation on the stretch of water, and the vessel probably got out of the channel and touched a rock. Old-fashioned and crude as the Mayflower was, the loss of the vessel will be a severe blow to the people of the little hamlet of Cumbermere who have already had their share of hard luck. A year ago, last August, a fire originated in the Hudson Hotel, owned by the mother of Captain Jack Hudson, who perished yesterday, and swept away half the village. This summer, a large brick hotel was erected on the site of the old frame building, which stood for over half a century, and it was the intention of its owners to make Combermere and District a summer and fishing resort. The mother, Elizabeth Hudson, and several of her sons and daughters live in Combermere. Mr. and Mrs. Hudson were pioneers in the district 60 years ago when it was noted only for its lumbering operations, which today are comparatively insignificant. No panic on Mayflower as steamer settles. Carrying nine to death. Accounts of disaster. Say no alarm on board. Steamer Mayflower waited at Barry's Bay for corpse or accident might have been prevented. Men faced death calmly and there was no panic. Steamer settled steadily until all hope was gone. The ill-slated Mayflower was to have left Barry's Bay at three o'clock in the afternoon. Captain Parcher, however, was asked to take the body of a man named Brown, who had died on Monday, to Combermere, and this caused a delay of some hours. In the gathering darkness, the coffin containing the remains was at last placed on board, and a number of men from the village, who had followed it to the small dock or landing place, stood for some minutes and watched the water-battered old boat slowly and laboriously started on what was fated to be her last journey. Already the night was inky, and a breeze that threatened to grow into a gale was whipping the waters into sharp, choppy billows. The sky was completely overcast, and scattering flakes of snow were beginning to fall. Every sign pointed to a stormy night, and there were some who mentioned that perhaps it were safer not to venture out. Seated around the fire and extracting all the possible warmth from their wraps and the few steam pipes in the small cabin, which was supposed to shelter passengers, the ten men sought as best they could to lighten the weary night journey before them. At the rear, set apart from the freight, was the coffin. A lantern was placed near it. Despite all efforts to be cheerful, there was a feeling of insecurity which grew more and more oppressive as the steamer swayed and labored under the lashing of the waters, which were growing more rough every minute. The old timbers, which many seasons and in many storms in the past had bravely withstood, all onslaughts at last seemed unequal to their task. 
The panting of the awkward, old-fashioned engine became slower and slower, and it sometimes seemed as if the crankshaft would refuse to obey and cease entirely its labored revolutions. Snow falling thickly. Snow was now falling thickly, and the wind whistled and moaned more ominously than before. A continuous spray was lashed across the deck from stem to stern. The men were drenched to the skin and benumbed to the very bone. Captain Parcher was at the wheel and spoke encouragingly to those around him. There was no sign of fear or panic among the men. They apparently all realized that they were facing great danger, but trusted that the once staunch old craft would again weather the storm. As the blizzard increased, everything grew blacker, and it was impossible to see further than a few yards into the night. The banks of the river on both sides were near, but landing places were few, and in any case almost impossible to discover in the darkness At intervals, the gleam of a light on shore would be caught sight of. The waterway winds its way through a lonely, deserted portion of the country, and the banks on both sides are covered with a thick growth of trees. It was shortly after eight o'clock. There seemed to have been a lull in the gale, or perhaps the passengers were growing used to it. They were passing through what is known as the Narrows. There the water is fathoms deep. At that stage, it was noticed that the onrush of water had torn a gap in the aged, waterlogged, rotten bottom, and the Mayflower lurched over on her port side. Everyone now realized they were facing death. By the dull, sickly light of the two old lanterns, the men looked for a moment at each other and spoke a few words of cheer. No panic on board. There was no confusion. Each man realized the worst and calmly prepared for it. The rickety old engine soon left them unaided and after a few pants and thuds stopped short. Water now seemed to rush into the hold from half a dozen seams and it was only a matter of a few minutes when she would be entirely swallowed up and gone. A quick search for life preservers revealed the awful fact that only one or two of these could be found. Only two slim chances for life remained. Either the doomed boat would not sink, or the men could swim against the rushing current to shore. It was dark as pitch. The thermometer was down to freezing, and both chances seemed equally slim. Then the old boat rolled over on the port side, and was swallowed up with scarcely a sound but the surge of the water as it rushed over her, and the men were left struggling in the water. Trainman brings news. The first train into Ottawa from the district surrounding the fateful tragedy was over the Grand Trunk this morning. The train did not arrive until 11.16 o'clock, owing to delays. Some idea of the hardships that the survivors must have endured during their stay on the island overnight could be guessed at by noticing six inches of snow on the cowcatcher of the engine. The weather on Tuesday night was bitterly cold, and blinding sheets of sleet driven by a strong wind enveloped the scene of dire calamity. None of the passengers on the train had relatives go down with the faded Mayflower 
or had conversed with any who had been in close touch with any of the survivors. Mr. J.C. Childerhouse of Eganville told reporters that he had first heard of the accident last night. The Eganville citizens said that he had known that the Mayflower had been running for 15 years and had lived near the owner of the boat, J.C. Hudson, who ran a sawmill at Cumbermere and owned a hotel at Pembroke. Hmm, the boat usually runs with a scow behind her, he said. Last night, for some reason, they had left the scow behind, presumably to make a faster trip, said Mr. Childerhouse to the journal this morning. The speaker knew the three travelers had been found and that one of them was unconscious. The unconscious man is Mr. Harper of Ottawa. There were 15 passengers on the boat, and 12 of them, as far as I know, were all drowned. There was a corpse on board of a man named Jones, whose remains had been brought to Barry's Bay on Monday morning and placed on the Mayflower for Fort Stewart, where they were to be interned in the cemetery there, said Mr. Childerhouse. A party of huntsmen came down from Killaloo and reported that five inches of snow covered the ground in the district. They had heard of the disaster, but beyond knowing that three travelers had been rescued from the island, they knew no other particulars. It was agreed among the passengers of the train that had come down from the Renfrew district that the storm that raged during the catastrophe was one of the worst in years. The GTR Conductor's Story Mr. J. H. Roberts, 68 Wildwood Avenue, conductor of the train, told the journal that he had been informed that the Mayflower, upon her up-trip on Monday, had run on a rock, sprung a leak, and was leaking badly when she made port at Barry's Bay. The boat should have left Barry's Bay on a return trip at 2.30 in the afternoon, but owing to the non-arrival of the body of the late Jones, which was to be taken aboard, did not put to face the raging gale until 7 o'clock at night, said Mr. Roberts. It was further learned that the boat had on the up-trip struck a reef some distance from Barry's Bay and had badly damaged her bottom and was making water fast before she even arrived at the dock. Whether or not they thought she had sufficient pumps on board to keep her clear of water on the return trip, I do not know. But I suppose they must have, or they wouldn't have started. Anyway, the boat was leaking when she started out on her return trip with the 12 passengers, stated the GTR conductor. I'm well acquainted with the vicinity where the disaster occurred and a fish for trout very near the place where the Mayflower went down. The water in that vicinity is about 100 feet deep and the lake all through is infested with hidden shoals and rocks. There are no lighthouses or buoys on the lake, and the trip, in my opinion, is a dangerous one to attempt at night, concluded the GTR conductor. They came very near being another commercial traveler in that disaster. On Wednesday, there was a traveler, I think it was representing an Ottawa firm. He was talking with Mr. Harper, Peverly, and Imlick, and was trying to arrange to trake the trip across the lake with them. He said that if he could be back by Thursday night, he would take the trip and the others told him that he couldn't possibly be back until Friday, and so he decided not to go. If he had gone, he would have been in the boat at the time that it went down, said Mr. Roberts. Mr. M.J. Harper was reported unconscious up to noon today, and Mrs. Harper left this morning for Cumbermere to be at the bedside of her husband. It is not expected that Mr. Harper will be brought to Ottawa until Friday, owing to his exhausted condition made fight for life.
No wreckage for the missing steamer Mayflower has come ashore, although there have been many on the lookout. The word so far received here indicates that the three Ottawa commercial travelers now at Cumbermere are the only survivors. Mr. Patrick O'Brien made a great effort to reach shore. He was in the water swimming for upwards of two hours, but a few minutes after reaching shore, died of exhaustion. Brother kept family in total ignorance. Mr. J. S. Imlock, one of the Ottawans saved from the Mayflower, which was wrecked on the Madawaska River near Barry's Bay on Tuesday night, is a bachelor residing with his parents. Mr. Andrew Imlock, one of the proprietors of the Victoria Foundry Company at 29.5 Thornton Avenue. When news arrived of the disaster, Mr. Andy Imlick, his brother of the Victoria Garage Company, immediately rushed to Thornton Street and cut the telephone wires so that no news could come through to his mother until he was certain of his brother's fate. From 9 till 11, Mr. Andy Imlick kept up a great show of high-spiritedness, and it was not till he was in possession of certain intelligence of his brother's safety that he let his mother know that there had been any danger. A friend came with news to the house, and it was naturally an immense relief to be able to assure his mother that her son had been saved. She had attributed his noticeable high spirits to some unexpected success in business. Mr. J. S. Imlach is 29 years old and is a traveler for the General Supply Company. He is very popular in Ottawa, and the news of his rescue was very greatly received. Three Ottawa men attended to at hotel. I am an Ottawa man myself, said a citizen of Barry's Bay when talking to the journal, but I have not had many details yet. At 11.39 o'clock this morning, there are no indications at Combermere or here of the four Ottawa men. The three Ottawa travelers are being attended to at O'Brien's Hotel, Combermere, by Dr. Carrier and are in no danger. They are all doing well. There is difficulty in getting into communication there on account of the weather, and also because Mr. O'Brien, who is in charge of the telephone office, is among the dead, and there's necessarily a certain amount of confusion. I've heard no details yet as to what actually caused the trouble, but the prevailing opinion is that the, that the vessel sprang a leak. Searching parties are out in force. Eganville. On account of stormy conditions, it's practically impossible to telephone from Cumbermere to Ottawa today, said an Eganville lady. But we have just been talking with Barry's Bay in Cumbermere, which is comparatively near here. The three commercial travelers from Ottawa who are there are staying at the O'Brien house. I understand they are confined to their rooms, but they are in no danger and are going well. I believe their relatives from Ottawa may reach some of them at four o'clock this afternoon. As regards Eganville, there's nothing new this morning. Five or six search parties have been out, and some are out now and going over the 12 or 16-mile stretch of water between Barry's Bay and Cumbermere. Oh, it's a stormy and blustery day, and their task is an exceedingly disagreeable one. No more wreckage has come ashore here, and so far as we know, the only bodies recovered are those of the captain, Mr. Pat O'Brien, of Cumbermere. There are rumors of the finding of an unknown man, but I can't confirm that yet. 
I believe the man from Yorkton, Saskatchewan, who was one of the lost, was in charge of that corpse on the steamer. Country desolate. Mr. W.C. Little, accountant in the Railway and Canals Department, who knows the Madawaska country well, having hunted there for years, says the region is desolate, there being only one farmhouse between Barry's Bay and Cumbermere, situated halfway, about seven or eight miles from each. A narrowing of the river between the two bays was where the wreck probably occurred, for just here there is an island which the survivors evidently reached. Anyone who happened to be carried past this island would be washed through into a wide bay beyond, known as Kaminiskeg Lake, far from land and safety. The farm between Cumbermere and Barry's Bay was visited by Mr. Little three years ago and belonged them to Mr. Watt. Jack Hudson, the owner of the Mayflower, worked on board as stoker and looked after the machinery while Captain Parcher took the wheel and was responsible for the navigation of the steamer. Mrs. Hudson owns a hotel in these parts and, proof that business was increasing, is found in the fact that the old hotel has been replaced by a newer and bigger building, which was only recently opened last month. As the days passed, the more true as well as presumed details of the sinking became clearer, generating much wild speculation and wrong-headed assumptions. Still, more bodies were found, the wreck was located, government divers went below, and still more bodies recovered. Opinions swirled wildly as to what actually had caused both the original sinking and, more importantly, the reason for the unusually large number of fatalities. A government inquest some months later would draw its own conclusions. But so, too, would Tom Murray. Remember him? The last time we saw him, he was nervously pacing through town that night of October 12th, awaiting the birth of his first child. It was quite the night. In fact, Tom says he was up all night, well into the next morning, until young John Joseph Oliver finally came kicking and screaming into the world. When asked in 1973 by his grandson, Sean Conway, what about the sinking of the Mayflower and its probable cause? Tom was quick to dismiss the often heard arguments about bad weather or that the Mayflower somehow sprung a leak. It was through neglect he said, conscious that he didn't want any of what you are about to hear published until he himself was in his grave. They used to have a rowboat behind in case anything happened, and that rowboat, 20 people could get into it. But the night that it sank, there was no rowboat that night. A diver found a bottle on it. That played into it as well. Hudson neglected to pump the boat out on the way down to Cumbermere, and so she filled full up and sank, just like that. It always leaked, and they used to pump it out as they went along. But they forgot to pump it out. They neglected to do that. And as far as the storm was concerned, there was no storm that night. I'm positive of that, says Tom's talking specifically about the moment when the Mayflower sank and the ensuing eight hours. I was going up to me brother's mix that night about 8 p.m. That was about the time the boat sunk, or that would be a little after the boat sunk. And I stood on that high, dry knoll to see which way the wind was blowing, and there was just a light northeast wind. 
I was afraid of a snowstorm, and that's what we got the next morning. There was quite a little breeze out on the lake. There was no snow that fell till four o'clock in the morning. I was out all night, and the snowstorm started about four o'clock in the morning, and quite a gale got up then, and during the next day, there was quite a snowstorm. But when those survivors made their fire, they had no snow. Everything would be bare, and there'd be dry stuff there. They had a lighter, but then they said they lost the lighter at first, and then they found it again. But they had more than six hours before the snow came. That fellow out in the water, paddling with his hands, shoving that rough box, and they were tied together with their neckties across the rough box. There were four of them. They took their neckties and tied them across the coffin, and so that was the way they hung on. But old O'Brien, he died before he got to the island. I had taken that same boat from Barry's Bay in June that same year, and we were waiting, waiting, waiting for Hudson. And finally Hudson came down, and he had a man on each arm outside of him. He couldn't hardly walk. His pants were all open, his shirt was sticking out, and the Methodist minister and his wife, they were strangers. It was their first trip here, and they were going down on that boat. So the day after the boat sunk, the minister called me up and said, You were on that boat last June. Do you think that was any way to run a boat? And when Hudson got down to Cumbermere, he buttoned himself up and took up the fares. They used to carry a lot of freight on that boat. That's where they made their money. They brought up hundreds of tons of corundum. Hudson brought that all up here to Barry's Bay to John O'Manick, who would unload it and then put it in the corundum sheds near the station. Tom never believed much in the ability of newspapers to tell the unvarnished truth. Then again, he was a wily old provincial politician himself. But if we've done anything tonight to raise questions about what it is that we all think we know or we believe when it comes to our local history, then our job is done. I'm Kristen Marchand, and for my producer, Barry Conway, we recommend highly that you visit our local Madawaska Public Library, go down to the Hudson House in Cumbermere, and start finding out the difference between what you think you know about stories like the sinking of the Mayflower and what really happened. It's a good night to start and a great story to begin with. And so we wish you a good day from the Madawaska Valley.